We begin today's podcast by traveling almost 800 years into the past. We traveled to Venice to watch three men depart on a very, very long journey. We reminisce about the swimming pools of summer. We quote Kubla Khan, a bunch of scripture, and ponder how far could you go at the speed of light, all on the way to answering the question, are you willing to disagree with God? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. The date is September 15th, 1254. This may not be a date that jumps out at you as being important, but this was the date that shaped many a childhood across the world and across the centuries. There was born on that date an historical figure of such significance that children of all ages learn this famous man and sing praises to his exploits by shouting his name at the top of their lungs. Okay, perhaps, perhaps I should rein it in just a little bit on those claims. He was born in 1254, but his name really didn't become a household name with children until, well, until maybe the 1970s. His fame spread from the United States to Hong Kong and then to the United Kingdom, but mostly in kind of the under 15 set. I really can't say if the childhood phenomenon of shouting his name exists anywhere else in the world other than those places I've just named. The man, of course, maybe you figured it out, is Marco Polo. Marco Polo. And although I grew up shouting his name in call and response in the swimming pools of my youth, Marco Polo, the famous traveler and chronicler of China and other Eastern cultures, really had nothing to do with the game, or at least the game really has nothing to do with his travels or who he was as a person. Kind of the only relationship between the two is that his name was borrowed for the game. Marco Polo was born into a family of merchant traders, and his uncle and father traveled to China and met the famous Kublai Khan. Now, they must have been on their trip for quite some time, because when they returned to Venice, they met Marco for the first time. The father and uncle eventually headed out again on another trip, once again to the same location, but this time they took Marco with them, and since the father and uncle had connections and friendships from their previous trip, they were greeted warmly in many places they visited, especially the court of Kublai Khan. Now, Kublai Khan was impressed by the humility and intelligence that he encountered when meeting Marco Polo, and he eventually gave him an official position within his court. Marco Polo then continued his travels throughout the East on behalf of Kublai Khan. He did not return home from that trip for 24 years. Now, that's a long road trip. It was upon his return and during a time of being imprisoned, there was a war going on and one side imprisoned him for his position on the other side. It was during that time of being imprisoned that he began to write the details of his remarkable journey. Marco Polo was not the first to travel from west to east, but he was the first to travel so extensively and put then his experiences into writing. And it's his writing 
that cause him to be still famous today? Well, his writings and a very popular swimming pool game. In his journaling of his travels, he tells a story about the problem Kublai Khan was having with gambling in his kingdom. Evidently, according to Marco Polo, it was something of an epidemic. Well, let me just quote him from his own writings and tell you what he had to say. And let me say that when he speaks of the Grand Khan in his writing, he's speaking of Kublai Khan. The present Grand Khan has prohibited all species of gambling and other modes of cheating to which the people of this country are addicted more than any others upon earth. And as an argument for deterring them from the practice, he says to them in his edict, quote, I subdued you by the power of my sword, and consequently, whatever you possess belongs of right to me. If you gamble, therefore, you are sporting with my property, end quote. First, let me just say as an aside, I find it ironic that Marco Polo described the problem as being gambling and cheating, mostly because the name Marco Polo, to me, is synonymous with three things. First, it's synonymous with travel through the East. Two, it's synonymous with a swimming pool game. And three, it is synonymous with rampant cheating during said swimming pool game. Now, back to the quote from him. Kublai Khan His argument is an interesting one. You are mine, and everything you own is mine. Therefore, when you gamble with the things that are in your possession, you really aren't gambling with your stuff, but with my stuff. Now, it isn't a perfect analogy to compare this to our relationship to our Creator. God didn't win us on the field of battle, but in every real sense, God's claim is actually much stronger. God created everything. And it's not just as if God created us or God created us in the earth or even just that God created us, the earth, and our solar system. God created, well, let me put this in perspective. It is estimated that Marco Polo traveled 15,000 miles on his journey that took him throughout the East. That's like walking from New York to Los Angeles six times. Okay, that's pretty impressive. The world's almost, let's say, 25,000 miles around at the equator. So he journeyed about 60% of the distance of the circumference of the Earth on his journey. Now, the fastest spacecraft ever to travel through space has gone fast enough to travel the Earth's circumference of our world in four and a half minutes, to circle the entire globe in four and a half minutes. Light, which travels obviously much, much, much faster, can make the same trip around the entire globe seven and a half times in a single second. And if you jumped on a spacecraft that happened to be traveling, not at the speed of our fastest spacecraft, but was traveling hundreds of times faster at the speed of light, if you were on a spacecraft traveling at the speed of light, you could travel for over 46 billion years at the speed of light, and you would not have traversed the full expanse of all of God's creation. So why do I labor these points? Well, partly 
I really find this stuff interesting, but partly because I think our sense of ownership is often based on our own sense of power, authority, and a lack of perspective. And it helps me to see myself differently when I have a sense of perspective and what, well, real power looks like. So God is the creator of all that is, and we are, at least in the sense of size, a rather small part of God's creation. Now, we are small in size, but not actually in relationship to God's creation. So let me quote from the first chapter of Genesis. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind as image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, really, there are two words here that should grab our attention when we listen to that passage I just read. And the two words, I think, are pretty obvious, dominion and subdue. God gave humanity dominion over the earth and then instructed us to subdue it. Now, dominion means power, but it really means power in a royal sense, meaning, yes, we have power in a way that a king or a queen has power, but that power comes with responsibility. Now, what I would like to tell you is that we have mistranslated the word subdue, but I can't. It means kind of just what it sounds like, with some caveats. The word that is translated as subdue means to defeat an opponent, but the word also carries an extra connotation, and it does carry the connotation that you defeat the opponent with the expectation that the opponent is hostile. Not that you're just going through the world defeating people. That particular word, subdue, assumes that the other side is hostile. So our problem here is that really doesn't help very much. So we need to figure out what's meant by these words. What did God have in mind when God placed us in this special relationship to God's creation? So let's move to the second chapter of Genesis and see if God, well, gives us some more clarity. In chapter 2, verse 15 of the book of Genesis, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So the purpose seems to be that God intends for humanity to utilize the benefits of creation so that we may flourish. Now, there are certainly those amongst us who argue this point that I'm about to say. Scripture is clear. Creation is ours. It belongs to us. We have dominion over it, and our job is to subdue it. We therefore do not need to be careful. Creation is ours. All of it is ours to use as we see fit. We have been given absolute authority over all of creation. And to say that creation itself has rights and that it has to be respected is to subvert the natural order of things, God's intended plan. Well, if we are 
only to read one passage of Scripture, that first passage I read from Genesis, there might be some strength to this particular argument. But allow me to quote some more Scripture. So when we read that first chapter and we read about God's creating the universe, it says, in the very beginning, God created light, and God called the light good. It also tells us that God created the earth and the seas, and when God was done with creating those, God called them good. Then it goes on to tell us that God created plants and vegetation and all things that bore fruit, and God looked at them and called them good. Now, I'm not going to cite them all, but in this story of God creating, the word good is used on seven different occasions to describe each phase of what God had done, and then at the end of the whole process, of what God had done in the making and forming of creation. The word good, in this case, could be further translated with some additional nuance in two particular ways. And I think they're perhaps saying something that overlaps a bit. The word good can be used to mean in harmony with God in this sense. Or another translation is that good can mean something that is fit for its intended purpose, which in this case can easily mean to be in harmony with God and right relationship with God and the rest of God's creation. Look, we may read this short passage containing the word dominion and subdue and assume that God gave us power without responsibility. We are free to do with whatever we want with the earth and its resources because it's our God-given right to do so. But in response to that, first let me say, just from the point of logic, not even arguing from Scripture, I can't imagine giving a gift to someone going so far as to give multiple instructions that accompany this gift, and then, well, really intending that the one to whom you give the gift understands that they can do anything they want and need not respect the gift that they have been given. Second, under the category of logic, I don't know about you, but the honor and respect I give a gift that I've received is directly proportional to the honor and respect I have for the one who has given me that gift. Why wouldn't we hold the gift of creation in the highest regard considering who gave it to us? But even if those arguments of logic aren't compelling for you, let's look at the Scripture some more. Do we really think that God would create all aspects of creation, pausing over each element to say, it is good, only to hand it over to us, never expecting us to have any reverence or respect for it? Look, I think it's time we change our focus when we read the book of Genesis to a different part of the Scripture. It's time for us to move away from the words dominion and subdue. They seem to get us into trouble, and they aren't used near as much in Genesis as the word good is in that creation story. And so maybe that's where we need to be placing our focus, on that word, good. God created the streams of the world and called them good. He pronounced that they are fit for their intended purpose. And what's the purpose of a stream? Well, the purpose of a stream is to offer water to plants and trees and animals and the things that live nearby. 
to offer a home to the fish and the creatures that make make that stream's waters their home. To carry fresh, cool, clean waters and nutrients into the lakes and the seas that the abundance of God's creation may flourish. All of these things are interrelated and all of them are determined by God from the very beginning to be good, to be fit for their purpose. And all of them depend on each other. If we spoil the goodness of any element of God's creation, then we likely are spoiling any other interrelated parts of God's creation. And once we see that any part of God's creation as no longer deserving the moniker of good, it seems like we are on our way to saying that none of God's creation deserves to be called good. So either all of God's creation is good or none of it is. So what's our job in this sense given to us by God? Well, remember, another part of Scripture tells us we are made in God's image. So our function is to emulate our creator, our creator who looked at all of creation and once again called it good. Look, if you don't believe in God, you have every right to dismiss everything I've been saying. But, but if you do believe in God, and it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal or what faction or denomination or faith you come from, if you believe in God, then you believe that all of the entire universe was created by God. That God called everything we know into being, and as a part of that process, God called it good. And who are we to disagree? That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like to get in touch with me by email, my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. That's dan at skypilot.zone. On your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to Sky Pilot Faith Quest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.